We are continuing our study this morning, not taking a, a, a change from that as we celebrate Mother's Day, but the best thing we could do is preach expositorily through Scripture for moms and for the rest of us. So we're in the Gospel according to Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to wrap that up in a few weeks, and happy to announce our um, new series called Proverbs, God's Wisdom for Gospel Living. God's wisdom for gospel living. Proverbs was not given to us. I'll dismiss the kids in just a minute. Proverbs was not given to us so that we can become just better people and learn how to be wise in this day and age so that we could promote ourselves. That's not what the book was for. The book was given like the rest of scriptures to point to our need of salvation and the greatness of our God. God's wisdom for gospel living so that we can be a people who rely upon Jesus, who rest upon Jesus, who trust in Jesus, who receive the mercy and grace of Jesus and live in such a way that other people could see that they need Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. So we're going to launch that this summer. I'm, looking, I'm getting ready and I'm excited about it. We're getting, reading more and more stuff and trying to get our you know, pastoral team, everybody on board. We're going to be meeting this week. We'll be talking about Proverbs. God's wisdom for gospel living. It's coming up soon, uh, beginning in June, I hope. So kids, you're dismissed. Uh, we're in Nehemiah chapter 10, the gospel according to Ezra, Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 10. Bible's in the back if you don't have one. Uh, we read from the ESV, English Standard Version here. Uh, if you have a New American Standard, it's kind of somewhat similar, but um, a little different. Translating from the Greek to the English, you get some differences of uh, translations, but still God's Word. Ezra, Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 10 is where we are. The walls surrounding the city of Jerusalem that were once in rubble and in ruin have been rebuilt and completed in 52 days under the leadership of God's man. His name is Nehemiah. But yet we have seen over the past several weeks God's not finished with Nehemiah and God is not finished with his covenantal people. Chapters 1 through 7 of Nehemiah were all about restoring the city wall. And the rest of the book, 8 through 13, really is about the rebuilding and the renewing and reforming of the people who are inside the wall, the city of Jerusalem. Sometimes we call it revival. Revival going on. And up to this point, we have seen two things going on with the renewal and the revival and the reforming of God's people. Three weeks ago, we looked at chapter 8. There was a large assembly, if you remember, that gathered together at what's called the Watergate around the Jerusalem, around the city of Jerusalem, around the actual temple. Um, There we had Ezra opened up his Bible. He's a Bible scholar. He's a Bible teacher. And he addressed the, the community, he addressed the people of God through reading of the scriptures. And then he and other Levites, other priests, taught and explained the Bible, broke it down into their own language, and then began to teach them, really exposit is the word, explain to them the scriptures in their own culture. And they, if you remember, they revered the scriptures. When when Ezra opened up the book, they bowed down and worshiped because they recognized that when God's word is being read, God is speaking. It brought sorrow, if you remember. But they were told by Ezra and Nehemiah to not to be sorrowful, but because this reestablished relationship with their God was a cause for them to celebrate. They said, go home and celebrate and enjoy, and have a feast, and have a barbecue. They said, have some food, and and drink. Phase one of the revival was was, and the renewal was the reading and teaching of the Word of God. Then over the past two weeks, we saw how in just a few weeks later, they gathered again. The people gathered again around the Word of God. And this time, 
Over the past two weeks, we saw that there was brokenness over their sins. They confessed their sins. They confessed their parents' sins. They confessed their, their parents and parents, great parents and, and generational sins. This confession of sin, this, this prayer time, lasted for hours as they recited how good God was and is and how sinful and broken they were. How God's faithfulness came through in the midst of their rebellion. And back and forth, we saw last week that these leaders were, were calling forth God's goodness, God's mercy, God's kindness and greatness. And yet others were talking about their unwillingness to believe, their unwillingness to obey. They talked about God being the creator God, the only creator of the heavens and earth. They talked about God's faithfulness who keeps his covenantal problem, promises. So creation and covenant. And then we saw how God was faithful. God was faithful because he rescued them from captivity, the Israelites uh, from captivity under the tyranny of, of Pharaoh back in Egypt. And, and he led them by night and day into this plush land called the promised land. And all throughout history of Israel's history, the Levites were reminded God is good. God is faithful. And yet they responded by rebelling against him. So God therefore disciplines those he loves. We talked about that last week. Chapter 9, verse 27 says, Therefore you gave them, God, you the Lord gave us into the hand of our enemy who made us suffer. You made them suffer, verse 33. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. You've been faithful, you've been just, you've been right in disciplining us. We've acted faithfully, uh, faithlessly. Chapter 9, verse 36. Behold, we are slaves even to this day. Right? They, oh, they're in the promised land. They had some freedom, but they were still under the, the scrutiny of the king. Verse 36. We're slaves to this day. You've given our land, uh, the fathers, to enjoy the fruits. And, the, and, and behold, we are still slaves. Verse 37 of chapter 9. We are in great distress. So phase one, reading and teaching the word. Phase two, confession and confidence in God while they were confessing their sins. Chapter 10 is phase three. It is a crucial step in the renewal and revival of God's people. And let me just give you, let me give you a synopsis. Here's the deal that we see in chapter 10. You can, I can, we can acknowledge God's word. We can acknowledge his word. We can even express sorrow and even distress over it, but never make the appropriate and proper changes that follow when we come encounter with the living God. The changes, appropriate changes that follow when we come encounter with God and his word. It's like the man who bought a parrot. It was a beautiful parrot, but it had what they call a potty mouth. He would swear for five minutes straight without even repeating a word. He was so embarrassed to bring people over to his house, the bird was driving him crazy. He appealed to the bird, clean up your mouth, clean up your language. But the parrot kept saying, yes, okay, okay, but promised, but nothing changed. Nothing happened, nothing changed. In fact, his swearing increased in volume and frequency. Finally, it got too much. Cursing and carrying on and yelling, he grabbed the bird by the throat and began to yell at it and told him to stop, but the parrot got more mad and was, began cursing louder and louder and finally opened up the freezer, threw the bird in the freezer and slammed the door. After a while, the bird is like squawking and screaming and thrashing around in the freezer and all of a sudden there was silence and the, the, the guy thought for a minute, oh my word, 
Well, I wonder if I hurt this bird. In a couple of minutes, he didn't hear anything. So he, he quickly ran over to the freezer, opened up the door, and the bird quietly and calmly crawled out up on his arm and said to, them, said to them, him, I'm really sorry. I really am sorry about all the trouble I'm giving you. I make a solemn promise now and a vow to you to turn from my bad behavior and clean up my language from this moment on. The guy was flabbergasted, just astounded. He couldn't believe the transformation this parrot had made just being in the freezer just a couple of minutes. The parrot then turned to the man and said, I just have one question. What did the chicken do? This morning, we're going to see four vows, four promises, four changes that the people of God made in Nehemiah 10. They weren't in a freezer, okay, but they certainly felt the sting of knowing that they've made promises, they have heard God's word, they have confessed their sins, and now they're saying, I want to repent. I want to turn from my sin. You know, confession is good and necessary, but not complete until there is repentance. The understanding of repentance, or from the biblical standpoint, repentance means literally a change of mind. It involves the will, it involves the intellect, it involves the emotions as well, but it always results in a change of action, in a different direction. And although, every, although each one of us who are followers of Christ... Have, have anyone who's a genuine follower of Jesus initially had repentance. There was a repentance and faith, the turning from darkness to light. And during their salvation experience, it's one coin, two sides. There is turning from sin and a trusting in Jesus. That's how we come to faith. But remember, chapters f- uh, uh, five of the seven churches in Revelation were told by Jesus to continue to repent, Christians to repent from their sins. And, and the people in, in Nehemiah's day and what we're reading today heard what God has said, had owned up to their sin. And then we read in chapter 9, verse 38, if you have your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, um, just so you know, in the Hebrew Bible, it's actually chapter 10, verse 1. The verse goes along with what we're going to do today. But it says this, because of all this, because of your faithfulness, because of your goodness, because of our sin, because of our wickedness, all of chapter 9, because of this, we make a firm covenant. The NIV has, in view of all this, in view of everything of chapter 9, God's faithfulness, our wickedness, we, we, we make a firm covenant and we seal the document. You see that? Our names, our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So this chapter 10 is a response, or rather I would say a, the consequence of prayer. In light of this ongoing history of apostasy and infidelity, the only thing that can, they can do is to repent. And if you notice chapter 10, excuse me, 9, verse 38, the Hebrew word there is amanah. It's translated in ESV, covenant, if you have a New American Standard, or you have a New, uh, uh, New American Standard, or an NIV, New International Version. It's uh, a firm, it, it says agreement, a binding agreement, RSV, firm agreement. ESV translates that Hebrew word as covenant, and everybody else kind of affirm agreeing because it's not the regular Hebrew word. So commentators, just so you know, if you guys, uh, community group leaders, if you're, if you're studying this passage, commentators have um, debated about why the regular word for covenant was not being used, or was not, be, you know, was not used in that passage. And some people think, oh, it's just synonymous. But some people think, which I kind of lean toward, that it's not just synonymous, Nehemiah is trying to tell us something. Nehemiah is trying to show us something in that word, in using that in chapter 9, verse 38, that Hebrew word meaning 
a binding agreement. And this is what I think he's trying to say. The Israelites were not making a covenant, as we see in the old covenant with Abraham and God. Okay, He's not making a covenant or cutting a covenant in that sense. What they're doing is they're making a firm agreement to live according to, to make a firm covenant or a firm agreement according to the covenant that has already been established through Moses, God and Moses. So what they're doing is they're not cutting a new covenant. They're making an agreement and they're going back and saying, we are going to go and put ourselves back under the covenant that has already been established. Look at verse 29 of chapter 10. It says, the people join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath, this is what's going on, to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. So what they're doing is they're making an oath and an agreement to come back under with curses and, and blessings, you can read that in Deuteronomy 28, under the covenant that was already given by Moses to his people. So they're not, it's, it's not so much that they're cutting a new covenant, the emphasis is that God God is the covenant maker. His people are the covenant renewers. Okay, covenant renewers. That's why we get our title, covenant renewal. So as this covenant, this oath, this firm agreement is the vehicle then of repentance. What they wanted to do is they wanted to say, listen, let's write down and let's preserve and let's continue to perpetuate the changes in our life. Let's do this so that we can keep in step with God. That's what's going on here. Now, we know about oaths and vows. The scripture is important. Numbers, 20, uh, Numbers 30 says, When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything in it. Matthew 5, Jesus says, Again, you've heard it said, Do not break your oath, but keep the oath you made to the Lord. But I tell you, Jesus says, Do not swear at all, either by heaven or by God's throne, that's what they used to do, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of Jerusalem for the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, do what you say, let your no be no, anything else comes from the evil one. So the Bible contains many principles and examples of people making vows. And unfortunately, I'm sure all of us can talk about vows that each one of us have made, whether it's New Year's vow or whatever vow, and we have broken them. We're going to come back to that. But let's look together and see the four vows that, that have been made. Okay, so submission... To the God's word is the first vow. Separation from the world is another vow or agreement. Sabbath for God's people and then support for God's work. So those are four covenant renewals and agreements that they will make. And I want you to notice first, before we go into our first point, chapter 10, who's the first person who sets his seal? A seal is the way in which you would form a document. You would agree to it, right? Who's the first one? Chapter 10, verse 1. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah. The book, Nehemiah. I mean, knowing Nehemiah as we do, it should not surprise us that he's a man of great leadership and says, you know what? Don't just do as I do. Don't just do as I say, do as I do. Don't just do as I say, do as I do. So Nehemiah has been a model toward leadership and willing to go the extra mile, willing to, to put himself out. And he is the first one to say, we're going to make this commitment. We're going to make this oath. We're going to renew our covenant and I will be the first one to set my seal upon it. Then after that, verses uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through following through 26, 27, you have a lot of names. I'm not going to read them. You're welcome. 
You can read them yourself. You can get home and have some fun. And we see over and over, you see the priests, you see the Levites and the leaders, all the way down to verse 28, it says, even the women and the children and anyone who could understand. So I'm going to tell you, if you're here and you're a young person, don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't count it lightly. We don't count it lightly. We don't, we don't, we, you're included. In a single devotion to God, you're included. And you too can have a sincere devotion to Jesus. Because that's what's, that's what's going on here. Okay? So everyone is included. The entire community is included. And then first thing they do is submit to God's word. Look at verse 28. Go down to verse 28. Uh, let me just see if that... No? Okay. Verse 28. Um, okay, I don't know why there's a black there. Okay, verse 28, the rest of the peoples, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, it's both, I think, I think he's talking about non-Jewish people there who have converted to Judaism and say, no, we're going to follow the one true and living God, they're included there, I believe, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, so the whole community has come together. Verse 29, they join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and, look what it says, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We've had a lot to say about God's word for weeks. But notice here it says we will do all the commandments. We observe all that God has saying. What, are they, what, what commitment are they making? What are they actually saying here? What, 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 what would take place here? Let me, let me tell you what they're not saying, okay? And then we'll talk about what they're saying. This is not what they're saying. We must not look at these verses and say, Lord, we need your salvation. We need to be rescued. We need to be redeemed. Therefore, we will obey in order for their salvation. These are principles, these are ways, these are oaths that will help them focus and express their love and devotion to God. Remember from last week, chapter 9, they have already made it very clear that God is faithful, God is good, they are wicked, but God is gracious and faithful. They already made that. So this cannot mean, Lord... What we want to do is enter oath. We're going to try harder and do better. And, and, and God, if we do that and we really try really, really hard, you're going to be kind to us and love us and you'll be merciful to us. It can't possibly be to win God's favor. They have already rehearsed God's favor and faithfulness and graciousness and mercy to them over and over and over again of chapter 9. Verse 17 of 9, 9.17 says, You're a God ready to forgive gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. What you have here is not a legalistic, moralistic rules, I'll follow and then you love me. It's a heart that is full of God. It is a heart that is full of the mercy of God. It is a heart that is full of the forgiveness and the kindness of God. Now speaking out, pouring out. (laughs) A response to God's faithfulness, God's goodness. Weeks prior to this, just two weeks before this agreement happened, they celebrated, the Israelites, we went back, we won't go back, but they celebrated what is called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is is the 10th day of the seventh month. This is the 28th day of the seventh month. The Day of Atonement, they would take two goats, they would raise their hand, the priest would take the goat, lay his hand on the goat, and confess the sins. 
and it would be symbolic of the confession of sin. Then they would send the goat out into the wilderness, kind of symbolic of saying, you know what, God forgives our sins. They're gone forever. They, he doesn't hold it against us. And they let the goat go. The second goat they would take and they would sacrifice the goat. They would take the blood of the goat and they would bring it into the Holy of Holies and the high priest would take the blood and he would pour it over, the, over the, what's called the, uh, the mercy seat or the Ark of the Covenant, the cover. And at that point... Each and every year, the blood would interpose between a sinful people who've broken the law, which is in the covenant, which is in the Ark of the Covenant, and blood would interpose between a God who must judge sin and a people who are sinners. And God would look down and for the moment and for the time being would see the blood and see their brokenness and forgive them of their sins. Year after year after year, this took place. Of course, we know it pointed to the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and that is Jesus. Every year they would do that. It would appease God's wrath and it would vert it for the, for the year until the following year. They would have to do it over again. So what I, the way I read these scriptures and I keep it in context is that they're coming with hearts that are full of mercy, full of gratitude. They're overwhelmed of God's love and his favor and his goodness and his grace. And they're saying now with all that you have done and all that you are, we need to respond. Family, it is so important that you don't get that order confused. That it was God's mercy and God's grace and God's kindness that led them to make an oath and to respond in repentance. Romans says it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And what we're witnessing is the people through and by the grace of God totally serious about their devotion and desire to follow God, what he says in his scriptures. God's not looking all over the world for great people, for perfect people. He's not even looking for religious people. Let me tell you this morning, he scans our hearts and he's looking for devoted disciples, for men and women from all ages who are fully, totally committed to him, people that he can pour his strength out on. William Booth, he's the founder of the Salvation Army. And they asked him one time about his incredible ministry and how how that came to be. And he said this, God has had all that there was of me. There have been men much greater than I, greater brains than I, but from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and I caught a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with me, on that day I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth, all of William Booth that there was. We just see a man, you know what? Just, just devoted, just, you know what? Here I am, broken, pieces, troubled in many ways, but Lord, here I am, use me as you see fit. Does God have all of you? Are there pockets, are there places, are there parts of your life where you're holding on to? And there are places that you know, maybe only you know, that you have not Release that you have not surrendered, that you've not let go, and part of you is still holding back. Here's a call. Here's a call to total surrender. So after submitting themselves to God and His Word, the believers take a second oath, and that is a binding agreement to separate themselves from the world. Look at verse 30. We will not, oath number two, binding agreement number two, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Right? Parents had a lot of say-so. Who married who? I kind of like that. I wish we still did that, but unfortunately we don't. 
The first thing they agreed upon was one of the most important things. I mean, intimate thing, marriage, man. It's like, you know what? We're going to start off. We're, just going to, we're not going to give our sons, our daughters to marry foreign people. They separated themselves totally and, and included marriage. Here the Israelites are like, we need to separate ourselves from the people around us and we need to be devoted to God and his word. Now, just so you know, this was not then and it's not now about ethnicity or a sense of somehow the Israelite gene pool was superior to every other person. That's not the case. In the Old Testament, many Gentiles, non-Jews, came to faith in Yahweh, came to faith and became part of the covenantal people. I think of Rahab and Ruth, two wonderful women, not Jewish, has come into faith through repentance and trust in God. And God used these two non-Jew Gentile women not only to, to serve him in a great way, but if you read anything in the New Testament, you know both these people are in the ancestry of Christ. Okay? So they turn from there. But rather, this has everything to do, when you read about this separation in marriage with foreign women and foreign men, it has everything to do with worship. It has everything to do with you and I honoring God. The law forbids people from living like Gentiles, but it does not stop them from being good neighbors and loving them, right? You can be distinctive and yet still be loving, but you need to be distinctive if you want to have influence. God wants his people then and today, his followers, his disciples, to be missional, to live on mission. A mission means to declare and demonstrate the gospel to their surrounding culture. He wants them to be missional in their relationships by using their distinctiveness to impact those who have not faith in him. So it's vital that their message through marriage would not be corrupted. Now let me give you just two reasons, and maybe you're here and you're single. Let me give you two reasons why marriage outside the faith is and will be disastrous. Number one, it's taught in the Bible clearly. We see it here. Second Corinthians in the New Testament, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Okay, if you're single, I know this is tough. I, I know it's tough to hear. But remember, God's will for you is for your good. You've got to understand that God is good. He just talked about how faithful and good God was. God is good. He's not a killjoy. In fact, he's a promoter of ultimate, everlasting joy when it's found in him. God's concern is that when a believer marries a non-believer, the stage is set for conflict compromise and at times outright conformity okay that's that's the bottom line so they're dangerous they're 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 taught in scripture not only that not only is it taught in scripture but it's an abundant clear and historical evidence that unequally yoked marriages led to disaster in israel right when people got married in the ancient world Husband and wife got married in an ancient world. I've got to say that we're in New York. When a husband and wife got married in ancient, New York, in, in ancient Israel, they would bring with them and they would get the blessing of and a commitment of their gods, small g, multiple gods, false gods. And they would bring their little idols into their home and they would have a prominent place in their home from their idols from this marriage that had taken place. That's what they would do. And although you may say, well, that's a little antiquated, nobody... Not, not that I know of anybody who got married and all of a sudden they are bringing their idols into their home. Think about it. No, not idols made of wood or metal. But we bow down to a lot of idols today, don't we? Money. Education. Looks. Portfolio. Prestige. 
self-esteem, mother of all sin called pride. Remember, remember this, family. Remember this. Every single person has been created in the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God. And the Imago Dei, part of the Imago Dei is that we are worshipers. It's not a matter of who, excuse me, it's not a matter if you worship. The question is who and what you worship. We are worshipers. That's the way God created us in the flow of worship. It's supposed to be to him, but each one of us have our own idols and we worship false things. We worship creation, things that we create rather than the creator God who's blessed forever and ever. Amen, Romans 1. So if you look at it that way, you wonder, you could, you could tell why when we engage and we are unequally yoked, many times those who are Christians, those who are followers of Christ, surrender and submit to worldly idols. They themselves become idolaters. What they do is compromise. And that's what he's trying to do. Stop them from worshiping false idols. That's why in Nehemiah 13, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, they ask a question. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin? On account of such women, foreign women, among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he has been loved by his God. He was loved by his God, and God made him king of all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him, made even him to sin. I think we are more influenced from people than we want to admit. Just my thought. And let me just make this clear. Some of you have married, and you're already in covenant relationship with non-believers. I applaud you, I, I, I respect you, I, I want to live out the scripture, to live at peace, and you ought to. It says that we are to live godly lives, that words are not as much important as a pure godly life, and we pray for your spouse that he converts, or she converts. 1 Corinthians 7 says live in peace with them, but I just want to talk for a minute for the young families here, the young kids here, maybe the older folks that have not yet got married. Be careful, be cautious of God's word. He loves you, and he wants you to be aware of what can happen when we compromise this great truth of Scripture. The question is not, will this relationship work out? The question is, is this relationship ordained and blessed of God? And does it fulfill God's word? I know it's not easy to hear, but I'm telling you, according to Scripture and according to ancient history of Israel, it is dangerous. And I've got to say one last thing and we're going to move on. Been a Christian almost 30 years. Seen a lot. Been down lots of roads. If you're considering the issue of whether or not you should marry someone in the faith. Now remember, if they're not, you're going to be, where are we going to worship? Who am I going to give money to? How am I going to devote my life totally to Christ when you're on this scale? You're on that scale. You're worshiping this, that, and the other thing. It's not a matter of, you know, if you worship. It's a matter of who you worship. And I will tell you this. If you're willing to submit and not submit, excuse me, to the clear teaching of Scripture, you've got to ask yourself the question. Maybe what I need to do is take a personal inventory of my own heart. Let's be honest. Of my own heart and my own renewal of my commitment to be totally sold out for Jesus and Jesus alone. Right? So they submit themselves to the word. They live separate lives. And number three, look what they do. Sabbath rest. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 says, If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Exaction of every debt, right? So they're going to forgive every debt. 
That's what exaction means. In Nehemiah's time, the merchants, what they would do is they would come strolling into the city on the Sabbath day. The gates would go up in Jerusalem and the, the gates would open up in the morning and then foreigners would come in on Saturday, which is the Sabbath, and they would sell. It would be easy for the Jews to accommodate, to emulate the customs of the foreigners and then violate the clear command of Scripture. So let's talk about the Sabbath first of all. What does the Sabbath mean? A Sabbath rest for God's people was a day set aside to honor and to worship the Lord. It was distinct from every other day of the week, the six days you shall work, and the seventh day there ought to be worship, a time of honoring our commitment, loving Jesus, right? Just the distractions of the day, put them aside and honor and worship God. Second, it's a day of relaxation. It's a day to relax. It's a violent agreement, uh, uh, excuse, me, excuse me, ingredient in effective living. God said on the seventh day, he rested. He says, you are to honor me, worship me on the Sabbath, and you are to rest. Third, the Sabbath was a day in which truth was declared. Let me tell you something. When, when the people of God set a day aside for the Sabbath, their unbelieving friends, their unbelieving neighbors take note. And in a very practical way, a Sabbath rest day is to say, you know what, I'm going to be sold out for God. From the very beginning of the church, we celebrate our Sabbath rest on Sunday. Now, I don't believe, I don't believe it's mandated in Scripture. I believe that Jesus fulfills the Sabbath rest completely. I don't believe that God in anywhere in the New Testament changes Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. But the principles still remain the same. I think Jesus fulfills the Sabbath. Hebrews 4 talks about renting into the Sabbath rest, which is the gospel. That we rest from works, that Christ died for our sins, that we don't work no longer. That is pointing to the ultimate Sabbath. But the principles of the Sabbath still remain. And in the New Testament, what you find is the apostles and the New Testament church celebrating, setting aside a day on Sunday to worship because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. So they celebrated this Sabbath rest, this principle of resting on Sunday. Now, all of us could probably do a better job. I don't want to be a legalist. I don't want to be a Pharisee and don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. But I think, for me anyway, I could do a better job at just resting on on my Sabbath rest, which, by the way, is a Tuesday. Because I don't rest today, if you haven't noticed. It's not a rest day for me. So let me just say something I think maybe will spur some on and then we'll move on, to spur some thinking with the Sabbath rest. Think about it this way. Sabbath rest is the evidence of genuine faith. Sabbath rest is the evidence of genuine faith and our devotion to God. It's not about legalism. It's about declaring our trust in God. In a way that when we keep the Sabbath, showing that although you could do something, you could do more, but you're trusting in God. God's the one who said rest is better for you than being productive every day. In rest, you are declaring God knows better than you. You're trusting what God has said and all that God has provided. Sabbath rest is being a good steward with the time God has allotted allotted you and the provision God has given to you. Look at the text. It says not only are they going to have a Sabbath rest, they were going to have a sabbatical year. You know what that means? Every seventh year they would give the land rest. They wouldn't plow, they wouldn't seed, they wouldn't uh, um, do all the other things farmers do, which I have no idea. Um, On that seventh year they would give the land rest. That I know, rest I know. And they would just let the, let the land lie and rest. Now, while all the other farmers are sowing seed and plowing and tilling and all the things, 
They're like, what's wrong with so-and-so? Well, he's a, he, he's a follower of Yahweh, God. They trust in their God to provide on the sixth year, according to Leviticus 25, what they need for three years. It's, it's, it's about trusting in God. So while everybody else is working, these people are going, you know what? Give the land a rest. God has declared he will care for us. At the end of verse 31, it says, exaxation of every debt. In other words, they're forgiven. So after the seventh year, they would give and they would free all the debts. Let me tell you something, folks. Let me tell you what this is saying. This is saying is I am going to trust in God and take my rest. I'm going to trust that he'll provide six days a week for me. And on the seventh day, I'm going to honor him, worship him, love him, be devoted to him. And then when everybody else around me is scrounging around, I'm going to show my love and devotion to God by keeping what he has commanded me to do and by the principle of Sabbath rest. And I'm going to forgive death. I'm going to do all these things is simply to show the world that we are trusting in God. Not in riches, not in the things of this world. That's a radical call of trusting in God. A very practical way to show that you and I are trusting Him. We are wholehearted, devoted to Him. And obedience to God always involves trust. And He will never, ever disappoint. So take a Sabbath rest, seventh day, we're going to let the land lie. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna trust God on the sixth year. And then we're going to um, forgive debts. And this is all because God, we trust you. We need, to, we need to trust you on this. And the fourth thing is support for God's work. Now, verses 32 through 39, the word, he's talking about the temple, right? He's talking about the restored temple of Ezra when we read in Ezra. And during those verses through 32 through 39, um, the, the word house of our God or the, or the house of the Lord, talking about the temple is mentioned nine times in just seven verses, Okay, nine times he mentions the house of God. Now look at verse 39, the very end. It says, and it just makes a, sums up their commitment. We will not neglect the house of our God. The temple life in Jerusalem was extremely important. It stood at the heart of the city's religious and moral and spiritual life. It was symbolic in terms of of the proclaiming presence of God, the the Shekinah glory, the place where God dwelt, the place where God's people came. It was everything to them. It was central to all spiritual matters, as Christ is to us today. This passage talks a lot about work, a lot about giving to God's work. If you're first time here, we cover money only when money's covered in Scripture. That's why we do expository preaching. We go through books of the Bible. When the Bible talks about money, we talk about money. Okay, it's not every week, it's not every passage of scripture, although I will say this, where you put your money, as Jesus said, your heart will be, and worship has everything to do with your finances, my finances, okay? Let me just give you seven things, uh, excuse me, six things quickly that we can see in this passage if you're taking notes. Number one, what we'll find in this passage, uh, 32 through 36, is that number one, it was about responsible giving. They were giving to the Lord's work, and it was responsible giving. Verse 32, verse 35, the people take on themselves. In other words, they assume responsibility, NIV. Place ourselves under obligation, New American Standard. They owned up. They spoke up. They took responsibility that God has blessed them, and that is their responsibility to give. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story, many of you know it. A a man is going away, and he gives his servants talents. One servant, he gave five talents, it's coins. One servant, he gave two coins. One servant, he gave one coin. And the master leaves. And the master comes back from his servant, and he calls his, comes back from his trip, and he calls his servants to him. And he says, you know, what's going on? 
The one he gave five talents to and the one he gave two talents, coins to, they doubled it. But when he went to the one he only gave one coin to, he buried it. And then Jesus calls him a wicked and lazy servant. He took the one talent from him and gave it to the one who had ten talents. And then Jesus said this, For everyone who has will be given more. And he will have abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken from him. God holds us responsible for our treasures. Family, God holds us responsible for our treasures. Number two, it was obedient giving. It wasn't impulsive. There was, look, verse 32. They were under obligation. Verse 34 and 36, written in the law of God. Okay? So it wasn't something that they just decided. They were following Scripture. They were being obedient to what God had commanded them to do. So it was responsible and it was obedient given. Look at the third thing. It was systematic and proportionate. Verse 32. Third of silver every year. Verse 34. They would give wood each time, set times of the year. Verse 35, the first fruits were brought each year. It was systematic. It was proportionate. All right? You see the offerings in the New Testament, same thing. On the first day of the week, Paul wrote, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. And I think when we look at this text, you'll notice that they were to bring in wood. Now, wood was necessary in the temple because they were burning sacrifices at the time. And I don't know, maybe nobody wanted to get the wood. It seemed like when I read that, I'm like, ah, what are we going to do? Nobody wants to bring the wood in. I don't know. I think, though, what you could say is, I think it's not reading too much into it. Maybe there were people that didn't have a lot to give. Maybe like, you know what? We got a job for you. You want to serve? You want to give? You want, you want to give systematically and proportionately? You don't have much money? Serve in this way. I mean, some people just maybe don't have it. Maybe something happened. I don't know. There are other ways to serve. So it was responsible, obedient, systematic, and sacrificial. What you will read in, in this giving of, of Nehemiah's day is you'll read the word first fruits. First fruit of the ground. First fruit of all the fruit of every tree. Firstborn, firstborn cattle, firstborn of the herds. Firstborn, chapter uh, 10, verse 37, of our dough and, and our contributions. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means that God is preeminent, God is sovereign, God owns everything, and I will give God my very best. That's what it means. Everything belongs to him. It was a demonstration in those days, first fruit, especially of the trees and of the field. What they would do is they would harvest, and the first harvest would be brought to the temple as as a way to give to the Lord's work. But it also said to the Israelite, I'm going to give the first fruits because I'm going to trust when I go back, the ground's going to grow more. It was a way to say, I'm giving you the first fruit, trusting that there'll be more to come. The Bible says that Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection from the dead. We guarantees us that our resurrection as well. So is the first fruit. It was to be sacrificial. Number five, it would be prescribed giving. It's a tithe. They would give a tithe. If you don't know what a tithe is, it's 10%. If that makes you nervous, I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you. They gave a tithe. Do we believe that a tithe is law, New Testament law? We do not. Do we hold that it's a principle of Scripture throughout Scripture? Absolutely. I don't have time to develop that. We have a sermon on that if you want. But I think it's a strong argument. There's a principle of Scripture about tithing. Okay? Um, there's only one law, and that's Christ. Right? I mean, we understand that, but there's a principle of giving, and tithing is in the New Testament. Finally, the last thing which we'll end on is number seven. It is redemptive. I love this. It's redemptive giving. It's gospel giving. They're not only to bring their tithe or their crop, not only to bring their first fruit 
of the field. Look what it says in verse 36. They were to bring the firstborn, the firstborn sons and the firstborn of the animals. Look at verse 36. Also, bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of, the God, of our God, the firstborn of your sons and of your cattle as it's written in the law. This is without question, any commentary will tell you this is without question, has everything to do with the law of redemption. God's law said that you would present your firstborn sons to the priest, you would bring your firstborn to the temple to redeem him, to buy him back. God repeatedly in the Old Testament says, the firstborn son belongs to me. And now they're saying, we're going to follow that law. We're going to follow the law of redemption. Exodus 22, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest. The firstborn of your sons, you shall be given to me. They shall be given to me. They belong to me. God said that because of the life of the firstborn, he must be redeemed. Not sacrificed, but redeemed with a substitute. That's what redemption is about. Substituting, buying back. Numbers 18. Everything that opens the womb of the flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. He's talking to the priest. But the firstborn of man you shall redeem. And their redemption price will be fixed at five shekels of silver. One last verse, Exodus 34, all in the law. Very simple. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. God in the Old Testament, and what we see here again, saying over and over, the life of the firstborn is to be forfeited unless it is to be redeemed. It is to be ransomed, not like a sacrifice, but there needs to be payment. Your firstborn sons you will bring to the temple and you will They belong to me, but if you want them, you have to redeem them. You have to pay. You have to buy them back. Here the Israelites are vowing to practice this law of redemption. And the question is, why is that so important? The firstborn, the firstborn son, in reality, is the family. He is the personification of the family. The firstborn got everything. He was to be the benefactor of the entire family. And what God is glowingly saying in the Old Testament is that every single firstborn must be brought to me. I am the Lord. He belongs to me and must be bought back because there is a debt that is owed. A sacrifice and redemption price must be paid because every single family in the history of mankind owes a debt to God. There becomes a sin offering. All of mankind has lived self-centered in rebellion and there God cannot, he will not look overlook sin. He is a holy and good God and all of us are indebted to him. So when God told the Israelites that the firstborn life belonged to him unless ransomed, he was saying in a very clear way in that culture that justice comes down, every family owes a debt to sin. No matter how many covenant renewals, listen family, you make, no matter how many oath promises that you make, you will never ever, I will never ever live a life without sin. You can renew your commitments every day. You can invoke curses upon you and invoke blessings from God upon you each and every time, but the truth still remains. All of us have sinned and all of us fall short of God's glory. And in fact, in chapter 13, two chapters later, the the Israelites are going to do the same thing. They're going to break the same, they're going to break this law. This commitment they make, they're going to violate it in chapter 13. Now I want you to see something very clearly before, as we close. All vows are ultimately broken. That's just truth. We're all sinful short of God's glory. All vows are ultimately broken. The curse, the belonging to us, 
falls on us because we violate God's law, God's covenant. In Deuteronomy, when God gave the law, he gave curses and blessings. Curses for a broken relationship, curses upon the families, and then blessings if you obey. Because obeying the law has to do with relationships. It's a relationship with God. He gives us his commands. We have to follow his commands. He saved us. We follow him. We love him. It's about relationships. Okay? Now watch this. Galatians chapter 3. This is what it says. We're all, all, all the curses fall down on all of us because all of us have sinned and fall short from God's glory. None of us have kept our, agree, uh, kept our, our righteous standing before God. All of us have sinned. Look at Galatians 3 says, New Testament. For all who rely on works of the law, I'll follow, I'll do, I'll obey, are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul is quoting Deuteronomy twice. Verse 10, curse everyone who doesn't follow in the book. And then in verse 13, he says, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. That's Deuteronomy. Paul is talking about curses and blessings and the curses that come upon us for failing to follow the command of God. The law was given, relationship has been broken, it's in curses and blessings. Look at verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified, made right before God by the law because we break it. The righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Have your choice, by faith or by the law. If you go by the law, you're cursed. Look at verse 13, glorious passage of Scripture. Christ, what? Redeemed. There's that word, redeemed, firstborn, redemption. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul's reference to a tree is the cross on which Jesus died. He was not stoned and then his body exposed. It was in the Old Testament saying he's cursed of God, but was nailed alive to a tree and left to die. And by dying on the cross, Jesus Christ bore the curse of the law for us so that now believers in Jesus are no longer under the law and its awful curse, but the blessings of relationship. Do you see that? On the cross, Jesus becomes our ransom. On the cross, Jesus redeems us by becoming the curse for us. He rescued us. That's redemption, to rescue someone. He did it by his own blood on the cross. The Bible says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. God himself comes down as a man and dies and redeems and substitutes. Where we should be, that curse should be upon us. Jesus bears the curse in our place. He became a curse. He wasn't just cursed. He was treated as, as if he was the lawbreaker. Jesus was treated as if he was Peter the denier. Jesus was treated as he was Judas the betrayer. Jesus was treated as Moses the coward. Jesus was treated like David the adulterer. All these horrible things. Even though he was born under the law, he was perfect and spotless. He became a curse so that we don't have to. Do you understand that? We get forgiveness. We get mercy and grace. And let me tell you something else what this passage is saying. It's clearly saying that the blessings now are ours. What that means is that we now have an eternal, unbreakable 
relationship with God based on Christ's righteousness, His work on the cross, His taking our sin, Him dying in our place, Him taking the curse that belongs to us is now on Him. And now in Christ, there's nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ, Romans 8. Amen? That's what he's saying. 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake God the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ takes the curse so that we can have reconciliation. He gives us the unbroken, intimate relationship with God the Father for all eternity because the curse has done away with because Christ bore that curse. He alone willingly took the dreaded curse that you and I belong uh, you I, that belong to you and I. The curse of the law fell on Christ. The curse of the law will not be defeated anymore. And let me tell you something else. Jeremiah the prophet spoke about a covenant that was coming. Spoke about a new covenant. Not the covenant of old. Not the covenant of, of, of do this, get that. But a new covenant coming. Where the one who would come who would take the curse for us. Who would die for our sins. And he said this. Jeremiah thousand years before Christ. Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with the fathers in the day. I took them from the hand out of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, you and I broke, though I was a husband to them, I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds. I will write my law on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Let me tell you something. Under the old covenant, there was no following. There was no even desiring Christ. But under the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated when he took the cup and he said, this cup on the Lord's Supper, this cup on the day of the Passover, this cup is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many. Let me tell you, family, it's under the new covenant that we stand. God promises a new covenant poured out in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and gives us a new heart and gives us a new desires and converts us so that we now have a desire to follow him. We have a desire now to walk with him. In the old covenant, we were expected to live up to our end completely. In the new covenant, nothing comes from us. Everything comes from Jesus. All that Jesus has done, all the work of Jesus on the cross, being our sin, taking our place, taking the curse that we deserve. Because of his grace, we now can submit. We can surrender our lives to him out of love, not fear. Out of blessing, not curse. Out of gratitude, not chasing after his love but because he loves us. So it may be helpful today, maybe tomorrow, maybe when we we sing and we celebrate uh, all that Christ has done, you want to make a renewal, you want to make a commitment, you want to go ahead and make an oath. I'm going to tell you this. You can go right ahead and do that, but let me tell you this. We don't become or thrive as a Christian because we make an oath or a promise or a covenant, but it's because we believe the promises of God, the covenant and the promise of God, and act upon what has already been done for us there is a huge difference between the two so yes respond maybe there's something in your life maybe it has to do with submission to his word maybe it has something to do with following the sabbath day maybe it has something to do with being separated and being distinctive and not going along and being different but yet living on mission maybe it has something to do with with this whole thing about giving i don't know 
But I will tell you, Christ calls us not to be loved because we are loved. Christ calls us to obedience not so that we can be accepted it's because we already are accepted. Christ calls us to follow him, to walk with him, not so that we can be loved and redeemed and received. It's because we are loved, we are redeemed, we have been received. And now out of love, we respond in obedience to him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Father, as we look to your word this morning, as we see Nehemiah, and we see these, these covenants, these keeping promises, uh, these agreements that were made, Father, we recognize that there is no covenant that we can keep to live in perfect obedience to you. Lord, it's not a sidestep, but just a reality. And Father, we want to just not come under your curses, but come under Jesus, who died as our curse, who died in our place, who died as a sin offering for us. And now, God, we want to receive that wonderful good news of Jesus Christ. His love for us, his work for us, his, his redemption for us, his substitute in our place for us. And Lord, we want to respond. We want to respond in love and devotion to you because of all that you have done for us. Father, may we never get that twisted. May we never turn that around. But Father, with our hearts, we want to be used of you to live distinctive lives, but to live on mission because of your great, great covenantal promise and the covenant that we are in and that's all because of Jesus we love you and father as we respond we respond in repentance and faith and celebration today holy spirit guide our conversations our songs our our responses so that you get glory and we would get joy in Jesus name